There's a lot of rebellions going on. How can we fix this? <laughs> no weapons for anybody. Yes, and then Kung Fu was developed. And then let's start measuring everything in rice. That was a wild thing that I never knew. Yep. Got a good old koku of rice. Hmm. A lot of rice. Yeah, that's about 180. What if... What 180 if, rice. <laughs> what if we, in a modern society, started paying taxes in rice? A lot of, I'd be I'd be effed. I, <laughs> I do not have a sustenant amount of rice. Yeah, these manicured hands cannot farm, so <laughs> I don't think we have a wet enough climate at this point to sustain rice fields, so I mean, yeah. It's just a ultimate war over the marsh like the two marshes and It's been dry as a bone out there. Mm-hmm. My grass. <laughs> Hello everybody. Welcome to the Gems of History Podcast. Best podcast that talks about grass. And prospective rice patties. <laughs> <laughs> you know, despite the name, we actually do not talk about minerals and rocks, so don't get your hopes up if that's what you came here for. It's just one of the most mind-boggling things. when, Like when we did that bar crawl last year, and so many people were like, oh, so like, what kind of rocks do you guys get into? Were they come again? Yeah. Like, yeah, like gems. What, what, what kind of rocks? Like, oh, now I see our branding issue. I specifically remember going up to this old, like, middle-aged couple, and they're like, oh, so what's, like, what's the podcast about? Like, what are some of the things you've covered? And I'm like, well, our newest episode was about the Vikings, and we've done stuff on, like, Roswell and all that kind of stuff. And they both looked at me for, like, 10 seconds, and they're just like, so you don't cover rocks. I was like, no, no, <laughs> we do not cover rocks. Not a single, not a single mineral is going to be talked about during today's episode. So if you came for that, we apologize. If you want to tell us that we should be I doing mean, episodes on rocks, you can reach us at all of our social medias on Twitter at Gems underscore <laughs> History. Haven't even introduced who we are yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's social social media promotion at its best, baby. <laughs> Uh, but I will be mentioning minerals like for five seconds. So if you are here for minerals, stick around for that part. We won't tell you which five seconds though. So you gotta listen to the whole thing. Right. But I am Jacob Shop, one of the hosts, and I'm here with my good buddy. And that good buddy's name is Evan. Evan Roosh at Wodevsky's on Twitter. Uh I am at Jacob Rumwisco on Twitter, so let's get let's get a war going. Whoever gets the most follows in the next <laughs> 48 hours wins. Has to do... No, they have to actually do the research for the Rocks episode. Okay. That'll be the, pun- <laughs> that'll be the punishment. Our penultimate episode of Recover Rocks. Oh, um, that's episode 100. That's how we go out. It's our last episode. It's like, all right, we're finally covering Rocks. Yep, it's our swan song. Welcome. <laughs> but today, we are covering an interesting topic. This is definitely an Evan topic. Yes. But it is very fascinating. We are covering the... Um, I'm, I've said this wrong almost every time I've referenced it with Evan. So it's called the Sengoku Jidai. And Correct. it is a giant period of pretty much civil war and internal conflict in Japan. Right. Like, you thought the American Civil War was bad. Um, there's, you know, a ton of... If basically, any formation of a country has either come from a resulting civil war or within 10 years has a civil war themselves that's yep. true with like spain england italy after the roman empire the mongol empire after it's you know formed literally every single government has collapsed like some sort of civil unrest civil war guys the Sen- the sengoku jedi went for hundreds of years yeah like it's 
the the warring states period is what it's called it's like over a hundred years long and it the first hundred years is just like two guys fighting with each other and then they both die and then everyone else is like well, I guess we'll just carry on with this this giant war we got going on. We got this, yeah. But yeah, it's it's honestly one of my favorite stories of history. It's just I'm a huge fan of like samurai culture and Japan in general. I think it's one of the most beautiful countries. Oh, it's I want to go there so bad. Right, we talk about all the time if we actually got to say see the cherry blossoms. Oh, yeah. Like in bloom, I think we'd we'd probably just two grown men just start weeping. <laughs> and I mean, I'm into anime. I like to think that I got Evan more into anime. Yeah. So You're- Zuki does not care for anime. Yeah, she was like, yeah, "My dad's a nerd now, thanks." Yeah, you're the reason why he. You're the reason why I have a Japanese name. <laughs> yeah, well, pretty much. But um, yeah, I'm excited to talk about this one. The more I researched on it, the more interesting it became. Yeah, it's. I mean, one of my favorite game, like video games, like I'm super into video games as well, is actually Total War Shogun Two, which is literally a video game about this time period, and. It's just such an interesting time period because it affects, of course, the country in and of itself, but it also expands into, we'll talk about like a conflict in Korea. It expands to relations with China. And one of the reasons why, the and this is something that I've learned uh, just with studying up on both cultures, why uh, Japan and China historically have not gone along, like even till today. Oh, yeah. So there's just so much that goes into it. Um, Japan fucks things up over on the mainland of Europe or of Asia for like a couple hundred years <laughs> after all this. They love just like dipping in and then becoming extremely isolationist. <laughs> yeah, because they're dipping like... Dipping in like, ooh, that's We have something. a little island we can go back to. So right, yeah. <laughs> we'll have fun. Right, then World War II happens and they're like, wait, there's other islands that we can go into as well. Yep. That was kind of like they're, they were pretty much isolationist until World War II happened again. I mean, they're here and there, but that right. was their main, main major conflict after like all of this stuff. So, yeah, yeah. So, very excited to dive into, dive into this one. So, I guess without any further ado, should we just jump right in? I suppose we should give the people what they want. But first, before we get into that, let me just go over socials at the beginning of the episode. All right. I'm not going to stop you. Yeah. So, you can find us on Twitter at gems underscore history. You can find Jacob at Jacob Fromisco, myself at Whatevskis. You can also find us on Instagram uh, at Gems of History Podcast. Just type that in and you'll find us, as well as YouTube and TikTok. Yep. That's that, the fastest I've ever done that. It is. That was very good. And for those of you at home, get excited because this is going to be two parts. Ooh. Fancy multi-parter. So The fancy. boys did research for once. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. An episode that doesn't start with wacky, huh? Hmm, interesting. That's two in a row. I mean, this Shout could out still our start man, with wacky. Uh, we haven't gotten there yet, so. <laughs> the there's, wa- there's a ton of wacky stories in this. So. The wacky Sengoku Jidai. <laughs> <laughs> I would not be opposed to calling it. really that. rolls off the tongue, but... Uh, just like we mentioned, every every country, every continent has been affected by some sort of civil unrest, and in most cases, leading into civil wars. And for Japan, a civil war means something completely different, because when they do it, they do it for a long time, like we talked about. And throughout the entire country's history, it's always been very commonplace for rival factions, these rival uh, local daimo to fight each other over anything ranging from land disputes to workers to 
you know, you have Trulik, you have, you've stolen my cattle. Like, let's, now we have to go invade them. Yeah, and the Daimo just are pretty much local lords. They control, like, little prefects mm-hmm. in Japan. And the differences between, like, say, the American Civil War, it's one side versus another side. There's two sides, each have one ideology on either side that they're fighting for. In this, it's pretty much just every prefecture against one another. There's no, yeah. there's no real sides. Everyone's just on their own. It's free for all mode in Call of Duty. Right. I mean, that's perfect. Like, if you have, if you're a landowner and you have some semblance of a military around you, like you're actively, constantly fighting off people invading you or trying to expand your own land. And this is also, I mean, a super common place to make alliances through marriage, as well. So often. Uh, no, or women born into nobility were often pretty much just seen as a means to expand one's land uh, for their for their family. So a lot of political drama, if you will, as long as or as well as a lot of warfare. Oh yeah, and the difference from like early Japanese civil wars and like internal conflicts is the sizes of the forces going against one another during the Sengoku Jidai increase exponentially like they start with maybe hundreds of people fighting for them as a local lord Mm -hmm. to getting to like tens of thousands so it's a massive increase in the size of fighting and with the climax of episode two of the series which you'll have to wait till next week we see a battle of 160,000 men yeah it's insane all going all vying for leadership well not all of them but all fighting for the future of japan yeah it, the, the size of the conflict just increases. Mm-hmm. The most famous of these uh, civil wars actually came with the Sengoku Jidai, which translates to warring states in Japanese. And it took place, it started in the middle of the 15th century uh, in 1467 and didn't end until the 17th century. So a very, very, very long time. Yeah. And for majority of this, we'll be focusing on mostly the back end of the Sengoku Jidai, uh, just because it's hard to fit 200-ish years of history into two episodes. Yeah, and as I mentioned kind of at the beginning, the first hundred years or so of this is, I want to say it was like the Ashikawa shogunate. Ashikawa, yeah. They, they were the ones in charge for a long time, and then eventually another counter- group like rose up against them so it's pretty much the ashikawas against a different one i don't remember the other one's name but uh it's those two fighting against one another for a long time so it is just a one-on-one civil war for a while Mm -hmm. and then both of those leaders just end up dying because it goes on for so long and then everyone else kind of starts realizing hey this is our time now to take over because the ashikawas are gone Uh so we got a little shot at this bad boy yeah yeah (laughs) And yeah, the where we'll pick up, it actually happens with a succession crisis in that uh, current Ashikaga uh, shogunate that Jacob just mentioned. Uh, there was just no heir to take over the shogunate. I mean, there is an emperor at this point, but he's just a figurehead. Uh, so the shogunate is in charge of Japan at this point, being that one focal leader. Uh, once they had that succession crisis, they basically lost all their power, and this is what started. The Sengo, or excuse me, this is what started the ending of the Sengoku yeah, Jidai. The second half, right? Yeah, they had a little, little, little break, um, and this is when all the different provinces, led by their own individual daimo, 
all started vying for influence in this complete free-for-all for the future of Japan. And over the decades, uh, a lot of these alliances shifted. It was very commonplace for treachery to happen based on the best deal that you could get, uh, as there was no true centralized authority. And Japan remained this splintered, chaotic place because it's also very hard to enforce laws when there's a million different people making laws. It's all local laws. It's right. like state power, pretty much. There's no federal power in right. charge. Right, state versus federal power. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Weird. It's never happened huh. before. But the, the thing about this is nobody allied with one another. So oh. <laughs> it was if you went to try and take over a different person's like land or prefecture, whatever you want to call it, then someone else would just come in right away when you leave and take over yours. Right. So it's just an endless cycle of people rotating through each other's lands and hoping that they can maintain some sort of a, a control there. Right. It's like, boys trip, gonna go raiding the castle, like oh, Osaka castle. And then you come back. And it's like, wait, my castle's gone. <laughs> Why is there a purple banner up? Mine's green. Yeah. Wait a second. This is weird. <laughs> Uh, however, at the like, we're going to pick up our story here, uh, and we're going to focus on the three most powerful generals of this warring states. Kenobi. Uh, mm-hmm. General Grievous. I think he's up there he's, as well. He's not the best one, but he's out there, yeah. Yeah, he's up there. He's up there. Who would be our third? I mean, kind of have to give it to Anakin. Yeah, I mean, he's up there. Yeah. Darth Vader. He's kind of a big deal. Ever heard of him? Uh, but these three generals, not Star Wars characters. <laughs> How uh, much more fun would that be, though? Yeah, right. I mean, if there oh. was just like Imperial starships, just so strictly over Japan, the Have rest we, of the world is like just learning copper. We've talked about this before, but Disney Plus has a show called Star Wars Visions. The first episode is set mm. in like feudal Japan. So go watch that because it's fucking awesome. Oh, also listen uh, to our samurai episode that we did like at the beginning of this. Oh, yeah, we talked about Japan quite a bit. So. Right, right, right. But these three generals... <laughs> okay, now we can get there. These three generals' names were Oda Nobunaga, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, and Tokugawa Ieyasu. Three men who would come to dictate the future of Japan. They're kind of big deals. Oh, yeah. And the, I heard it described interestingly. It was the, that, like, Oda Nobunaga got the ingredients for a cake, then... Uh, Toyotomi Hideyoshi baked the cake, and then Iyasu ate the cake. Yes, it's that's... Per, it's a very good way of putting how things transpire. And, I mean, I can't say it any better. Let's close the laptops. Right. You can get to editing right away. <laughs> nice, basically... nice and short and sweet. Right. That, there's just like cake. Years just of, like cake. There's short 200 years of history wrapped up in a bow. Get you a podcast that, that can make it more efficient. I <laughs> dare you. By using baking analogies. Right. But we're going to start with the story of Oda Nobunaga, because, again, he's the one that prepared the cake, or bought the ingredients for the cake. Pretty I forget the analogy I, already. <laughs> yes, he bought the ingredients. But before we even get to Oda, there's just like a couple of things that I thought were interesting before he really enters the picture. Mm-hmm. So there is a clan called the Matsudaira clan, and they're kind of in s- southern Japan, just south of Kyoto, maybe a couple hundred miles. And... They had a neighboring clan called the Imagawas, which comes into play. And the Imagawas came in, stole the son of the daimo of the Matsu, the uh, Matsudaira clan. So he's getting taken back over to the Imagawa side. Then the Oda clan comes in, 
takes the boy again. So now he's not only been given his ransom for an alliance, but he's also been kidnapped by another enemy. And then the Oda are like, hey, Matsudaira clan, you either stop your alliance with the Imagawas or we're going to kill this boy. And the leader of the Matsudairas is just like, okay, go for it. Because <laughs> if you kill him, that just proves how much we believe in this alliance with the Imagawas. So that helps us there. Yeah. And if you don't kill him, then you don't kill my son. So it's a win-win. And so the Oda are like, oh, what the fuck do we do now? <laughs> that's like... That's like S-tier negotiating. Yeah, and then, so, eventually, the Imagawa push the Oda back far enough, and the Matsudaira and the Imagawa are, like, kind of going to be in charge, and then Oda Nobunaga kind of makes a name for himself. So, yes. there's a lot that, like, goes into just the precursor to Oda getting involved. Oh my gosh, yeah, and that was extremely commonplace just to capture and just hold on to hostages. Oh, yeah. Uh, whether that to be like upholding trade agree, like anything from upholding trade agreements to hey, don't attack us. <laughs> like it's very commonplace for alliances through marriage or just straight up like stealing someone's kids. And that kidnapped kid is going to become the the emperor that eats the cake in our baking analogy. So it's a pretty insane start to his career. <laughs> what an absolutely wild life! Like my childhood was filled with private education and. Worrying about why my back is so sweaty. <laughs> yeah, blank softball in the in the park. <laughs> yeah, like testosterone is changing my body, <laughs> and this guy's like, I'm a hostage. <laughs> I got given up as ransom, then got kidnapped and almost died. <laughs> a little bit different lives. Yeah, weird. <laughs> but it's now starting with the story of Oda Nobunaga, who got kind of this uh, this all started. Uh, Nobunaga was the son of Oda Nobuhide, uh, and their clan. Uh, was a rather minor one in the schemes of things at the beginning. Uh, his father, Oda Nobunaga's father, Nobuhide, was just a minor daimo uh, in the Owari province uh, in central Honshu, which is the main, if you know, if you know the image of Japan, it's three separate islands and Honshu is that middle guy. The big one. The big one. <laughs> uh, Nobuhide controlled the area around the city of Nagoya. And amassed wealth and a rather respectable force of military retainers, because that basically translates into samurai, as well as, you know, every peasant, every farmer also had their own. They kept a peace on them, let's say. Nobuhide died in 1551, and Nobunaga actually succeeded his father, uh, succeeded, excuse me, Nobunaga succeeded his father's estate, and then overpowered his relatives and siblings with his claim to take over the Daimo ship. And then in 1560, he would begin his campaign to greatness at the Battle of Okehizama. This is going to be a tough pronunciation I was going to say, you got a lot of names in your notes, so I'm looking forward to it. Hot dog. <laughs> I only got like three that I need to know. Dang. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of ironic that the history that I'm most obsessed with, I just can't say any of the words. There's a lot of names, the names. that are pretty similar to one another. So. That's true. That's true. So, Imigawa Yoshimoto was actually the powerful warlord of what is now Shizoku Prefecture in Japan. And he amassed a force large enough and an economy sustainable enough to actually make an attempt on the capital, Kyoto. And the reason why that's important, because that was the traditional seat of the shogunate so basically if you took control of kyoto 
you had control of Japan by extension because it's just a tradition of that's where the shogunate lives. That's where the royal palaces and everything. Right, right, right. But to do so, he had to go across each and every province up until Kyoto one by one. And as you know, everyone was trying to throw hands during this time. Yeah. <laughs> everyone was actively sword fighting. Pretty much everybody was kung fu, fu fighting. fighting. <laughs> That's beautiful. But one of these little provinces was Owari, where Odo, Oda Nobunaga was. The Imagawa entered Nobunaga's territory in early June 1560 with an army that is said to be at 25,000 men, which for this time is not too shabby for just one province. Of course, he did have some alliances, but it's a pretty, pretty big army. Yeah, this is the two clans that I mentioned right before we got to Oda that combined together. So this is them coming to Oda's territory. Right, right, right. And once they entered the territory, they camped right outside of Nagoya, uh, an area near the village of Okahazama. Nobunaga was well aware of the might of the Imagawa, of course, having scouts relaying the number of his troops. And despite that, Nobunaga was only able to raise 2,500 men. So we're looking at literally 10 to 1 at this point. Bit of a disadvantage. Just a tad. Oda wasn't no bitch. No, not one bit. And knowing that the enemy had superior numbers and that he would never survive a siege attack, uh, and that they were very, very right around the corner, he actually devised a rather desperate plan. So the evening before the attack, Nobunaga gathered his 2,500 men and told them that waiting would be suicide. And that it would be best to attack the enemy head-on before sending them home to rest before the big battle. I like to consider this where Nobunaga goes goblin mode. <laughs> I've seen that on Twitter a few times. Like animals going goblin, goblin mode, mode. And it's just them freaking out. Yeah, it's like cat losing its mind. So um, this, is, this is Nobunaga going goblin mode. <laughs> I love it. Nobunaga awoke early the next morning got dressed in a samurai armor, recited a passage from the song Atsumori, intoning that, and I quote, man has but 50 years, and life is but a dream, basically saying, YOLO. <laughs> he then wolfed down a bowl of rice porridge while still standing, and departed with his men. I don't know why the source made it a, a point to say a point he was to still see. standing. Yeah, well, I guess it is tradition to always be seated when you're... Yeah, eating they, they just sit, regardless of culture they sit on those uh mats on the floor right so i guess there's something symbolic he was in a rush we talk about going to japan all the time if the seating is only like that my hips are gonna explode <laughs> like i cannot i cannot sit on the ground <laughs> i'll be helping you up off the ground and you're getting gonna, you a walker <laughs> honestly yeah while his exact route uh from from the the, the while Oda's exact route from his stronghold is unknown, Nobunaga did make several stops to actually pay respects at a number of different religious shrines. He also visited smaller castles on the way and different samurai quarters to gather more men. This took right around four hours, which was a lot longer than necessary considering the enemy was right around the corner. Uh, but he just continued to stop, see what kind of men that he could get, 
And at one of these shrines where he prayed for victory, he actually threw down five hold coins in an offering to the gods. And the men, apparently, were extremely overjoyed to see that all five coins landed face up. That's just gotta be a sign. Absolutely. Always say heads. OG upstairs (laughs) is looking out. Nobunaga's forces soon arrived at Zenjoji, a fortified temple overlooking the Imagawa forces' campsite. Nobunaga then ordered his men to set up a multitude of war flags, all with their banner, around the temple to make it look like there was a much larger army located at that stronghold. Basically kind of Trojan horsing them, if you will. Yeah, because even if, I mean, he would have had the high ground if he set his forces up there, so it's not, it's not like it was a bad strategic position, but he, he had such a good idea doing what yeah. he did, especially just because it was his land, he knew the landscape, so he knew where and what to do. Did you see the absolute, like, bolt of lightning hit me when you said high ground <laughs> yes i did we've already mentioned general kenobi we can only talk about star wars once today i got it <laughs> we got we, get, we get one more in this episode okay perfect we'll try to fit her fit her in the story goes that under the cover of a massive rainstorm nobunaga and his men left the safety of zenzoji and made his way towards the enemy some recent research suggests that it wasn't raining but it was actually just strong winds, but, I mean, you get the point. It was not the best day. Either way, it was noisy enough that he could get in there quite undetected. Yes. Nobunaga and his 2,500 men then secreted themselves into position, and in an area known as Kamagatani on the other side of the Imagawa's main camp. There's little to know about this valley, but I thought it was interesting that it's actually now a parking lot. Oh, just for one of the most infamous battles in Japanese history, it's now just a parking lot. I mean, the Imagawas parked themselves there. Hey, so... yo. Do you think, there's, do you think that place is haunted? Just a haunted parking lot? Gotta be. Japanese places are always haunted. They have that a literal is suicide true. forest. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh. The dark side of <laughs> the Japan. Dark. There you go. Oh, you, you wasted the one additional dun, reference on that. Dun, 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 dun. I was, I, no, I wasn't going for Star Wars on that. Oh. I was just going for like a true just, crime documentary style where it like uh, every all the colors yeah. invert when you hit that part and there's like a shattering glass noise <laughs> in the right. background. <laughs> the dark side of Japan. Whoa. So on June 12th, 1560, which was a extremely steaming hot day, interspersed with again bad showers and thunderstorms, Nobunaga made his move. The Imagawa forces were actually celebrating their recent victories over the capture of the Oda-held Maroon and Washizu castles and the liberation of their own Odaka castle. And they were pounding the sake, to say the least, and just having the finest of foods. They were rolling through all of the territory that they had already gotten into. So Mm -hmm. they were on like a nonstop mission, so they just decided, here's a good place to camp. Yeah, they were like, wow, we're kind of hot. We should probably celebrate this a little bit. However, this actually forced them to, A, of course, drop their guard because alcohol. But since it was so warm and it was just all in all just muggy, wet, whatever you want to say, a lot of the soldiers actually removed their armor. The smaller number of Oda troops, being very familiar with the area, made their way down from slopey hills 
to get to their camp a little bit easier. Just again, just sneakily sneaking, tiptoeing through the tulips. They must have had those boots that Otto Warmbier was wearing. Oh, the and their sneakiest, the sneakiest boots. And their sneakiest boots. Once they reached the small valley and got right outside the camp, they finally made their move and stormed the Imagawa camp. Imagawa Sho Yoshimoto was in his tent, was in his tent-like war camp enclosure, when he at first heard the fighting. He, however, thought it was just a drunken brawl between his men and didn't immediately react to it. Eventually, though, once it just kept on getting louder and louder, closer and closer, he left the camp to investigate and was absolutely despaired to see Oda troops bearing down on him. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was like watching a play or something while, while the attack happened. I've heard reports that he was either watching a play or he was conducting the head ceremony, which if you're not familiar with that, after a, a, any sort of victory uh, in, this, in Japanese culture at this time, they would cut off the heads of their opponents and then basically bring them to the lord, the commander, whatever you want to call it, bring these heads to the lord and have a whole ceremony showing the cut-off heads to the lord. It was basically like a party. Yeah. Like you would have drinks, laugh at the, your defeated enemies, at their defeated cut-off heads. And it was a whole thing. Whole little celebration. He was having fun one way. In one way or another. When Nobunaga's troops stormed the camp, um, him and his men were at rest and, again, just not, did not have battle on their mind. And they actually abandoned their camp with the majority of the force and fled about 100 meters to where the actual fighting would eventually take place. Imagawa is said to have fought off one attack by the spear-wielding Mori Shinsuke, cutting through the Oda samurai spear and into the man's knee. However, he was then tackled by a second Oda samurai, Hattori Koheta, who promptly took the general's head. Imigawa Yoshimoto was 41 years old at the time of his death. I love that there's all these people with, like, the best swords in human history, and he just gets tackled. <laughs> yeah. He's honed. That's, for 41 years, this man has honed his craft as a, just an amazing swordsmith. Can cut through anything. It's very probably never lost a one v one, and then he gets tackled. <laughs> just literally, just gets football moved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, got a zig when the other everyone else is zagging. You know. This battle raged for a short while afterwards, but with their leader having been dispatched early and all but two of the senior officers killed, the remaining Imagawa men soon surrendered and either escaped or actually joined the Oda faction. If you can't beat them, join them. Yep. Nobunaga's 2,500 troops had just defeated an army of over 25,000, and this was one of the most important turning points in Japanese history. The battle signified the end of a very powerful Imagawa clan and elevated Nobunaga's name and status across the entire nation of Japan. It also allowed the freedom of one of the Imagawa clan's prized hostages, a 19-year-old youth, that you may know of, that we may have mentioned, who was dressed in all red armor. And fun fact about one Matsudaira Matoyasu, holy cow, who would eventually change his name to Tokugawa Ieyasu. He, during the time of the attack, 
was actually leading a supply mission to Odaka Castle and was away from the actual battle when Nobunaga attacked. So essentially, he was running this little errand and it saved his life. And this man would, spoilers, would eventually become Shogun. Yeah, this guy has the luckiest life that I've read about in a while. Oh, for sure. Between getting kidnapped, almost killed, well, kidnapped twice, almost killed. (laughs) His dad saying, like, I dare you to kill him. (laughs) Then your dad gets killed in battle and you're just off doing other things. Mm. And he's got more coming up. (laughs) It just seems like he's impossible to kill. So... Good for this guy. <laughs> right. You've got to give him some props. He's a survivor. That's for sure. <clears throat> this was also a huge victory for Oda, too, because now he has the former Imagawa clan in his forces now. Right. So that means that all of the land that they control is still being defended by the Imagawas, but that leaves Oda open to go north because he's got the southern part of where he controls now covered from, by the Imagawas. Right, and with that alliance, I mean, like you said, he didn't have to worry about his rear flank, and like you also mentioned at the beginning, it was so commonplace once you left your castles to go fight at someone else's castles, someone else would go take your castle. Yeah, it was a big game of chicken waiting for people to leave. Right, it's a never-ending circle. (laughs) Nobunaga was a very adaptive ruler, especially when it came to warfare. Uh, He was very quick to seize on any type of advantage that he can get, whether it be political or actual new weapons, and he was actually the first of the Daimo to organize units equipped with guns. The Arquebus. The Arquebus, exactly. He was the first one to be like, these metal balls are coming out very fast. This would be great. These are, these are hot. Yeah, I want them all. He also brought the agricultural production of the fertile Owari Plain, as well as the rising merchant class in his own home city of Nagoya, uh, to really build his economic base. And with the economic base assured, and with the uh, Imagawas now covering his rear flank, as well as just joining his army straight up, he proceeded to make his way to the prosperous area uh, in the west that included Kyoto as, like we mentioned, is Japan's capital and the long center of power of the shogunate. So like we mentioned, in 1562, he did enter an alliance with Tokugawa Ieyasu, who covered his rear flank, and he actually, Nobunaga, actually moved his base of operations north to the city of Gifu. In the following year, he then supports Ashikaga Yoshiaki, who hoped to become shogun after the assassination of his elder brother, the former shogun, Ashikaga Yoshiteru. I'm killing it with these names, not going to lie. <laughs> so this guy, he was part of the original clans that were fighting in the Civil War. So yeah. his, his father was dead, who was like the last powerful ruler in the Ashikaga tribe. And so his brother, his elder brother, was the one that was kind of, that was quote-unquote in charge. But we, as we've mentioned, they're kind of just puppets. Right, And so he sees his brother get killed, and he runs away and sees Oda. He's like, Oda's doing well. I'm going to go ask him for help. So he's like, go, come help me get my throne back. <laughs> help me, please. Nobunaga did help him and marched on Kyoto and made Yoshiaki Shogun, but is more of a puppet figurehead oh, for sure. at this point. Soon, however, Nobunaga fell out with Yoshiaki, 
and at last, in 1573, in a climatic battle, had him deposed of. It's so funny how Oda uses this guy. He sets him back up in power, and then immediately tells him, hey, send out a big dinner invitation to all of the surrounding clans and ask them to come and honor your new position or whatever you want to call it. And all of them are like, hmm, this is sketchy. We're, we're going to say no, because mm. they knew, well, this is probably a trap of some kind. And it was, because Oda was just going to kill them all when they showed up. Right, they, they watched the Red Wedding episode. <laughs> and so they say no, and then Oda's like, oh, you guys said no, you're betraying the Emperor, so we're going to come invade your land. Now. You're not coming to my dinner party, <laughs> so... So he's just like, one way or another, I'm going to come attack you. What a dramatic loophole. It's it, like, they didn't come to my dinner party, well, I'm going to come get you. But, but what if we did come? I would have gotten you. I would have killed you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oda's being adaptive again. Oh, that really Oda is. always being adaptive. <laughs> Are you going to pinch his cheek? Like, <laughs> that you're dark. such an adaptive little guy. It's like all of the other shoguns like, in the area are just like, that Oda. Ah, he got us again. While all this is going on, Nobunaga did promote a new economic policy by abolishing the collection of tolls on roads. Wow. Look at you, Illinois. Still haven't figured that one out. <laughs> Uh, and also from the different trading guilds, uh, both of which had been privileged sources of income for local daimo. So he's looking to weaken the income of basically what's equivalent to states. So he's looking to take away states' rights. Wow. <laughs> he is trying to unite Japan. Yes. He also went on to strengthen his military forces and in 1571 destroyed the monasteries of an. Oh, hoo, hoo, hoo. this is a doozy. And Ryaku Temple on Mount Hiei, outside of Kyoto, which was the headquarters of the Tendai sect of Japanese Buddhism. These guys were awesome. These guys were warrior monks. They're, That's the Ikawiki, or the Iki. This is where one of their stations was. Right, right, right. So, yeah, he destroys this temple, though, because he hates these guys. He has the, oh yeah. His biggest feud is not with the samurai. It's with these warrior monks. Like despises them. And Nobunaga really wasn't the biggest fan of Buddhism in general because the religion just had a huge impact on politics. And of course, he wanted to have the whole whole impact on or sole impact on politics. I mean, just to give you a reference point, the Iko Iki, the other main headquarters that they had, it was in a different province and. They literally went in and took an entire province from the samurai there by force and was the only province in Japan not held by samurai at the time. Yeah, that is incredible. And there insane. were a lot of provinces, <laughs> like close to 100. And then they just wouldn't pay taxes and they were just being, in general, annoying to <laughs> Nobunaga. So he's just like, I hate these guys. I hate them, I hate them. And I then anytime them. you'd make a new enemy, he would get the, uh, the enemy of Nobunaga would get the warrior monks on their side. So he'd be like, I just can't get rid of these guys. Right. I mean, he, he fought them on and off for 10 whole years. They, the, he sieged their castle for 11 years. Yeah. The longest siege in any battle. Right. Yeah. It took them a long time. And like the, I mean, the Iku or the Iko were very good warriors, like you mentioned. And they were, I believe they actually part of their religion, like their certain sect of Buddhism was... Like, if you retreated in battle or, like, you gave up and surrendered in battle, I believe that's when, like, you were kind of denied, like, the next step yeah. in their religion. 
So a little bit of motivation there too. Yeah. So Nobunaga, of his initial assault on them just did not go well because he sent thirty thousand men to go get these guys, these monks, just one castle of monks, and they immediately get stuck in the marsh. And then the monks come out with guns and yeah. just start shooting all of them. Yeah. So then he just seizes it for eleven years. But it's it's just hilarious that these this random group of assorted monks gave him such an issue. Right, and it was only through just the mediation of the actual imperial court at Kyoto that Nobunaga in 1580 finally achieved the surrender of the fortress monastery of Hangan Temple at Osaka, yeah. which was kind of like that, the, the center that you were talking about. So it took a very long time. But yeah, the other castle, he just lit- it was on a hill, so he literally just started the trees at the base of the hill on fire, mm-hmm. let it burn all the way up, and killed everyone inside, like women, children, and men. Oh yeah, he did not it care. Was, he is very brutal when he has to be. Yes. Nobunaga then established his hold on the samurai in the nation, as well as the wealthier farmers, by giving them newly won estates that he conquered. Thus gaining a firm political and economic basis, which strengthened by reducing even further the traditional influence of different Buddhist temples by burning them down, like like we just mentioned. Once he was established in Kyoto, he extended his protection to the Jesuit missionaries, and this is actually where our man, I'm now forgetting his name, Toyotomi? Uh, the Hideyoshi? first, no, sorry, the first ever uh, black samurai, only oh. black samurai. <laughs> yeah, you're looking at the wrong guy because I completely forgot his name as well. Oh my goodness, I gotta gotta look that up. That's bad to just totally. Oh, Yasuke. Yeah, shoot, that's bad. We love Japanese history. We love it. Just totally forgot. Forgot one of the. You coolest watched an characters. entire anime based on him. It was pretty good. I liked it a lot. But this is just uh, so he is starting to reach out to adopting and just accepting more european uh, style dress religion he wasn't a christian he used it strictly for politics uh as well as just like again reduce the influence of buddhism yeah he supported christians so he could get rid of the annoying monks <laughs> <laughs> but then, then they were replaced by annoying european monks wow <laughs> weird <laughs> oh goodness uh, by the spring of 1582, he finished conquering all of central Japan and was attempting to extend his empire over western Japan. However, in June of that year, Oda Nobunaga was at Hono Temple in Kyoto, and Akichi Mitsuhide, one of his vassals, actually rebelled against him, against the shogun. Nobunaga was wounded and surrounded during the attack, and with absolutely no chance of escape, he committed seppuku. And basically, if you're not familiar with seppuku, it's the traditional disembowelment that samurai would do as a way to almost redeem themselves for losing. Um, It's the actual operation of it is quite graphic, so if you don't want to hear it, skip the next 30 seconds. But it's, you essentially take a knife, uh, your typical short dagger that was kind of coincided with your long katana, and cut your belly open, you pulled your intestines out, and then there's typically someone standing behind you that chops off your head. Kind of wild. Yeah. (laughs) 
But by the time of his death, Nobunaga had succeeded in bringing nearly half of the provinces of Japan under his control. Now you may be thinking, what happens with the rest of the country that he just conquered? Where do we go next? Hey Evan, what happens with the rest of the country that he didn't conquer? Like, where do we go next? Well, where we go next is actually to our second guy that we talked about, Hideyoshi. Uh, He was able to maneuver or outmaneuver Tokugawa Ieyasu, who was, again, the third man that we talked about, to become his former master's successor. And I know, Jacob, you have a little bit more information on on this man, on Hideyoshi. So we don't know a ton about his early life, but Toyotomi Hideyoshi, he was born into a peasant family in 1537 AD, and his original name was Hiyoshi Maru. And he only had one name because his family was so poor that they didn't have a second, like a clan name or anything like that's, that. That's right. He was a commoner. Like a title. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So since his family just was a peasant family, there's just not a lot of records about his early life. All we really know is that eventually he joins the army, serves under Oda Nobunaga. And there's varying reports on what exactly he did, but a lot of it pretty much just sounds like grunt work. And that eventually he becomes Nobunaga's sandal bearer, which is a pretty important position. You're always with the leader of the military force. So eventually, Oda Nobunaga becomes impressed by Hideyoshi's service, and he gets promoted through the ranks, becomes a general, and one of the most important military commanders underneath Nobunaga. So he rises very quickly and shows that he is worth the risk of taking on. Started from the bottom. Very much so. (laughs) So most of this. The reason that he rises so quickly through the ranks is because he's a very good diplomat, and he goes through bribes and threats and just general diplomacy in people's prefectures and their lands, and turns all of the shogun's men against them, the all the daimos men against them, pretty mm-hmm. much, and recruits them to their force. So he's growing his army and also not having to fight to gain territory anymore for Oda. Which is pretty key because there's only so many men in an army at this point. Yeah, exactly. People are not expendable. And one of the biggest rumors about Oda, or about uh, Hideyoshi, one of the, the legends around him, is that Oda Nobunaga wanted to siege a castle, but they didn't really have a strategic point to attack from. So he told Toyotomi Hideyoshi, go build a fortress right outside at the base of that one. So the legend goes that Toyotomi Hideyoshi put up a fortress in one night. So these people in the fortress <laughs> went to bed, woke up, and there's another castle outside. I mean, that seems a little far-fetched, but I mean, what are we considering a fortress? Either way, that's pretty incredible. It is a legend, so it's not right. verified, but I have heard reports say that, like, he put together separate pieces outside in different locations and then just brought them all together and assembled it overnight, pretty much. So yeah. I guess it kind of is the same thing, maybe. Checks out, checks out. And then the ladder was invented. <laughs> yeah, so him and uh, Iyasu are both... They're very important in the come-up for Nobunaga in his military. And just a sidetrack to Iyasu for one second to tell you again how he is the luckiest person in the world. So, we'll recap one more time real quick. He was kidnapped twice, didn't get assassinated, even though his dad said he should be assassinated. 
and he was on a mission when his father got killed, and now he's almost one of the most powerful people in Japan. Mm-hmm. And so he goes out on a mission, loses all but five of his men against a very powerful daimyo off to the east of Japan. And this daimyo was the first guy that came up with a cavalry charge. So he just devastated people's forces on the way to uh, Tokugawa Iyasu. And so Tokugawa retreats back into his castle with only five people. And instead of running or committing seppuku, he lights has all of the pyres lighted on the castle walls. And then he has one of his soldiers bust the front doors of the castle open really dramatically and just bang on a drum in the front of the castle. Now the doors are wide open to the castle where you're trying to defend. Mm -hmm. And so the enemy gets super confused because they see everything all lit up and this guy banging a drum. So they're like, well, they've got to have a bunch of forces getting ready to fight or something. And this is all at night, so you can't really see what's going on. And so while this confusion's all going on, Tokugawa Iyasu sends famous ninja Hitori Hanzo into the enemy's camp. He kills a bunch of people, Mm. and then the enemy's like, oh, well, they've got to have a big force that they're coming to fight us with if this is only like the beginning of it. So they all retreat. So he defends a full castle by himself against a giant cavalry force with five people. That is so awesome. I totally forgot about Hanzo as well. This is literally the start of the ninja. Hanzo was like the ninja. So he was underneath uh, Tokugawa, apparently. Right. Sorry, that was just a sidetrack that I wanted to mention because it's all happening kind of around the time that Hideyoshi gets into power. Absolutely love that. That's such an incredible story. So it's just like being clever. Yeah, exactly. These are some of the most clever tacticians that we've ever covered on this show. So Hideyoshi takes over after Oda Nobunaga dies, and he becomes the biggest part in the end of unifying Japan. So he takes over, and after taking the throne, he changes his name officially from his original name to Toyotomi Hideyoshi, claims the title of Taiko for himself, which is higher than a shogun, so it's like... Take that, Oda. Big man on campus. He rebuilt the palace of Kyoto and built several fortifications. He started destroying secondary castles that rivals would be able to use. And he built a defensive wall around the capital of Kyoto and built palaces and more castles. So he immediately starts to build a reputation as this guy's doing stuff. That's... Again, just so adaptive. You know how you prevent people from holding out against you? Destroy the castles. Yes. You know how you like prevent people from getting to you? Build a wall around your castle. Yeah. So he pretty much goes through, and after gaining the backing of imperial courts, he issues edicts to ban battles between the other daimyo in Japan that are still not under the unified banner. And... Some of them obviously did not like that because they're still independent, technically. Hey, we like battling, though. (laughs) So Hideyoshi just goes in and puts them all down by force. And then after the fact, relocates estates from these people and imposes restrictions on them, like forbidding marriages of alliance and keeps hostages in the capital as precaution if these people would start acting up again. Mm -hmm. And this is where Hideyoshi's name becomes as important as it is because he starts instituting a bunch of different policies to keep Japan unified. 
And that's what he's pretty much known for is a lot of his diplomatic and political moves, not as much his military prowess. He was a good fighter by most accounts, nothing spectacular, but he really knew how to change the landscape of Japan politically to make it work. Right. He wanted to focus on actually keeping this country whole. No, they literally have been fighting for hundreds of years. Yeah. He wants to keep it like it's finally his it's his country, essentially, it, and like he wants to keep it the way it is. Yeah. Like over a hundred different separate shogunates are now completely unified for the first time. Mm. So he's not gonna let that go. So after everything is finally under control for him, it says he didn't really listen to anyone else besides his younger brother and his tea master. <laughs> The tea master. The tea master is somehow so important once he takes over. That sounds, that's right, yeah, but that sounds like honestly like a calculator. Yeah. Like the, <laughs> the tea, tea master, master 91 yeah. or something. So effectively, the new government was a dictatorship, and he began to issue surveys of the lands that were now all under his control to come up with an effective and quote unquote fair way to tax each area. And instead of doing the usual way of reporting a census, where it was the people that lived there would report for themselves, he actually sent out his own commissioners to a lot of the areas who would get the census numbers and also report back on the conditions of the fields and the surrounding lands. And that would help him calculate an expected tax in what is called koku. And koku is equal to around 180 liters of rice. And that was the measurement for taxes was how many koku does this area owe versus this area, depending on how their field's doing and how many people live there. 180 liters, wow, so 92 liter bottles of coke worth of rice. Of rice, yeah. So he also changed the records in the census to say the name of each farmer who directly cultivated the land instead of the shared ownership of Mm. the land, ensuring that each and every person was going to pay taxes instead of like a shared tax bracket on that property. And this also would give him numbers to provide for military services. If he needed to recruit people, now he knew exactly how many people were in each area and how many people he could use out of that area. So a lot of the work was done also by the daimyo of each land because they would submit land registers and maps for him to look at. So he'd be like, I can use this area for this or that area for that. He, he makes a lot of good moves here, but it's also, you can tell how authoritarian it's already getting. Right. Very quickly becomes a dictator. Yeah. He takes the role very, very naturally. <laughs> As I mentioned, he was a good diplomat. So in addition to new taxes and rep- representation in the national census, farmers were also forced to give up any weapons that they had. So swords, bows, spears, and basic firearms were all confiscated in what would come to be known as Hideyoshi's quote-unquote sword hunt. Mm -hmm. So most of the farmers were accustomed to having weapons because they had to defend themselves in the the days before a unified Japan. And if they had to defend their lands from bandits or thieves, whoever would come in, that would be their way of doing it because they had their own weapons. But Hideyoshi was always paranoid about uprisings after just unifying a country that was all uprisings for <laughs> right. over 100 years. Yeah, good reason. So he just wanted to cut that possibility out at the source and got rid of all of the farmers' weapons. So now they're solely farmers. And that move is the start of getting everyone separated into classes. Right, yes. So in 1592, he 
let out another edict stating that the national census must contain a number of people in the households, naturally, but it also separated them into different societal classes. So low-ranking low samurai, whereas before they could choose to either be a samurai or they could be a farmer or they could do both. They could be a samurai when they needed to and then farm in their free time. I just moonlight as a farmer right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of in my off samurai season. So Right, yeah. When I just need like a little me time, I just go out to the fields. But now, with this new edict, low-ranking samurai couldn't become townsmen or farmers. They either chose to be samurai or gave it up to be farmers. And most of the time, they would force you to be a samurai if that was your family heritage of being samurai. And this meant that when they were a samurai, they had to rely entirely on the lord of their land to pay them instead of being able to supplement themselves with farming as a different source of income. And at the same time, farmers couldn't engage in any merchant or craft works. So between this and the sword hunt, it was firmly established now that there was a new class system and you couldn't move between each class. You were stuck in what you were in. Yeah, which, that sucks. Yeah, it's like caste systems. Like oh, in 100%. Early days. It's yeah. very easy, easily becoming a strict dictatorship. Right, you have one job and one job only. It's, very, it's easy to control people when they can't move around. Yeah, I mean, you're putting your whole dependency on the local lord just to get meals. Yeah, exactly. So you're really hoping that you're not going to get screwed by the guy in charge. Right. So samurai, merchants, and craftsmen would live in castle towns, and the smaller villages were completely made up of farmers. And the system came to be known as the Chi-no-ko-sho system. And Chi-no-ko and Sho were the different names for the different classes. So now there's official titles separating everyone, and if you get stuck in one, sorry. Yeah. Don't you dare touch that sword, little farmer. When he came to power, Hideyoshi had no problem with Christianity, as Nobunaga had no problem with Christianity before him, and he offered them protection, but they started to become an issue when these Christian groups began to give lands to Christian organizations and were destroying shrines and temples in the areas that they were beginning to settle in. So, he eventually ordered missionaries to leave, and... After this, he realized, well, I still want to trade with Europe, so all of these European missionaries that I'm kicking out, it's going to be hard to justify that and also trade. But, so the policy really didn't get enforced very strictly. It was kind of just a say it and for, set it and forget it kind of thing. Right. It's like, get out of here, wink. It's but like, get out of here, but wait, the guns are going too? No, no, no. But wait, give me money. Yeah. <laughs> but things came to a head when Hideyoshi captured 26 Christian missionaries who had defied this original edict and had them mutilated and executed in Nagasaki. Ooh, so, not great. Yeah, he did enforce it somewhat, but it's, it's not going to last super long. So despite his Christianity policy being strictly enforced for those 26 poor missionaries, trade ultimately became more important, and Hideyoshi wanted to continue his lucrative trade with the, specifically the Portuguese, who were trading silk and silver back and forth. And it's clear to see that this is what was important to him, since he even went around his own anti-piracy edicts and hired legal pirates for legal trading, and they kind of worked double duty by helping secure maritime routes for trading ships. 
again, it's being adaptive. It's yeah. like, I, man, I am just sick of all these pirates. It's like, wait, they can transport goods, though. This like, is, ships can do other things. This is like during the golden age of piracy when Europe right. and all of the European countries started hiring on different uh, pirates yeah. like enlisting them as soldiers of fortune pretty much and then after they stopped warring with each other all the pirates are still sitting around and they're like these guys won't be an issue and then they immediately become an yeah, issue pronto so that is absolutely insane that like that's i just don't even haven't even thought about that while like the new world quote-unquote is getting discovered like this is happening yeah exactly so it causes a lot of problems for their trade. Well, it helps and causes problems because some right. of the stuff that they're trading now is being traded by the New World, and so it goes back both ways. But Hideyoshi began to become more expansionist after this because everything's now settled down in Japan. Now what he's fighting between themselves really anymore, so now he's got this standing military that he needs to do something with. So he started to demand possession of some of the local islands nearby that were owned by the Portuguese or other European powers or other uh, Asian powers. Like India had some stuff that they wanted, so they took that. And they also started to demand tribute payments from other countries nearby, namely Korea. And he knew he could use Korea also as a way to begin his assault on the declining Ming Empire in China. But Korea, upon learning this, said, nah. Yeah, you're not coming through here. <laughs> so we they, are not going to be your like buffer state yeah, here. So they denied paying tribute and denied allowing him in to move into China. Shocking. And in 1952, Hideyoshi launched an assault on Korea with an army of 150,000 men while he stayed back in Japan safe and sound. Yeah, talk about an invasion. Like That's a lot of men for this time period. Yeah. It is pretty crazy. And he just wanted to also just, like, keep, like, warmongering samurai who have just been fighting the last, like, few hundred years, like, busy. Yeah. It's like giving them busy work. Like, that's that's kind of a, that truly is, like, a main reason why he, you know, wanted to do this invasion, as well as maybe just more land and more more money. But. Yeah, that those both help also. <laughs> yeah. So the Japanese originally took the advantage in the fighting because the Koreans were vastly unprepared and didn't mm -hmm. actually expect the Japanese to come and invade. And they moved through the country of Korea with relative ease, eventually getting to Seoul after like two months of being in the country. So very mm -hmm. quickly. And part of the reason for this was, so I watched... There is a series called Extra History, I believe it was called, and they did six parts on the Sengoku Jidai. They're each like 10 minutes long. So that's where I got a lot of my information for this from. And they also did a series on Admiral, the Admiral, who was the Korean guy that pretty much saved the day for Korea in this, in this war. And he said at the beginning of one of those videos that the reason Korea kind of got ran over initially is because they just weren't ready, even though they had a standing armada of like a hundred ships waiting. Mm -hmm. They didn't think that the Japanese were actually coming to invade. They thought, oh, well, maybe this fleet that's coming is here to apologize, to pay us tribute for disrespecting <laughs> us like they did. Wait, why do they all have swords? <laughs> well, and then the, the Japanese first fleet of ships to land from the Japanese was 300 ships that were mostly trading ships. They weren't yeah, warships. Right. So with, if Korea would have mobilized their navy, 
and attack these ships, they would have easily defeated the Japanese oh, and pushed sure. them away. Mm-hmm. But they didn't think they were actually coming to fight. So without mobilizing them, those ships got destroyed. And this initial fleet of 300 ships from the Japanese land immediately start killing people. And these 300 Japanese ships were only part of the armada they sent over. And it was just one guy that wanted to land first. So he got really eager and went ahead of everyone else. So he was just a sitting duck. So Korea really missed an opportunity to save themselves here. Right. But once the Japanese were on land, it was a massacre. And the only thing that kept Korea in the battle was their navy. And it was one guy in command of that navy that kept them pretty much safe. And I didn't write his name in my notes, which I probably should have. It was Admiral E. Son Sin. Yes, that guy. He's awesome. So the Korean Navy had cool ships. They had these turtle ships, which, yeah. which had like a protective yeah. shell covering with spikes on it. And the head of the ship could also bellow smoke out, which was fucking awesome. One of the most impressive visuals you'll ever see. <laughs> they, they had a really cool Navy. So this admiral takes over and they pretty much tell him, you got to go defeat these guys by yourself yeah you're kind of on your own here so he had like 20 ships that he could recruit that he recruited eventually got more on his way to the battle and ended with like 25 to 50 ships between warships fishing ships that were recruited and so he's like i'll see what i can do but his strategy worked out really well because he found a harbor where a bunch of these japanese ships were just docked went in destroyed them all so he took out like 40 ships in this harbor. Yeah. Lost one guy that got injured. That was it. And it was a sprained ankle. Wow. <laughs> so then he goes back out to sea and he's ready to return. And then one of his the guys in his fleet says, hey, there's five Japanese ships over here on their own. So he goes and gets those and then finds like 10 more. So he destroys like 50, 60 Japanese ships without losing any men or any ships. That's so impressive. So That's incredible. Just doing this strategic type of hit and run tactics is the only reason that korea was managed managed to not get taken over by japan right i mean those ships are absolutely crucial for getting supplies in getting more men in even carrying communications as well exactly and that's the main reason japan couldn't stay in the country they didn't have enough uh supplies steadily coming in to help back their soldiers and also china came so China sends a yeah. bunch of people to help the Koreans. Right. Because they see, well, Japan's a way bigger problem. We can always deal with Korea if we have to. Let's get rid of the bigger threat. So they, get, they push Japan back out. A deadlock ensues. A truce eventually follows, and they begin negotiations. And so then there's five years of peace between everyone. And then Hideyoshi's like, let's go back to Korea. Run it back. So he sends in a similar size force, but again, supply chain issues bog him down, and the campaign eventually ends when Hideyoshi dies, and Japan withdraws all of its troops from Korea, with both sides at the end having been dealt huge blows by the other. It was, wasn't really a win for either side. No, it was a true stalemate yeah. at that point. I mean, Japan, they made good headway, but just couldn't really make, yeah, it, it, make it all the way. They didn't have the logistics worked out. You always underestimate how important logistics and supply U- lines they are. They needed UPS or FedEx to help ship them supplies. Oh, absolutely. They need- <laughs> always go with Brown. Right. They needed like Amazon Air or yeah, something like that. Amazon Prime. 
So trade relations obviously were impossible between the two countries now, and China had pushed their budget so thin when they helped out the Koreans that it led to the collapse of the Ming regime in China and the eventual rise of the Qin dynasty, whereas Korean agriculture would take two centuries to recover from this. Right. I mean, that's a, that's a Japanese force of 150,000 people. They, I mean, once they conquer an area, like, they use the food. And if this is anything like the J Japanese during World War II, they are they ruthless. They are not great. Yeah. They are not good. Japan does everything to the extreme, is one way of saying it. They never half-ass anything. They always give their whole ass. So, one good thing that came from this for Japan was that they acquired a bunch of Korean potters because they just took them and relocated them to Japan. So the Their art got prettier. Wow. <laughs> yeah, the Koreans were known for like being experts in ceramics. So this kickstarted a giant Japanese porcelain industry that would continue on through like the 1800s. So huh. kind of a big deal. Right. But aside from his military aspects and his political aspects, uh, Hideyoshi's rule also kind of took a revolution in culture too. Not huge things, but the artistic focuses in Japan shifted more towards realism. Uh, merchants began to combine those new European sentiments of novelty and grandeur that they were getting from these missionaries and traders. And that kind of showed in the remodeled castles that came up around this period. People of Japan became very interested in tea ceremonies, which I kind of mentioned that the tea masters mm. became very important around this time. And in these tea ceremonies, the people would compete to assemble cool-ass tea sets, they would study with tea masters, and they would have huge tea parties. So tea was the name of the game under Hideyoshi's rule. I guess when you're not fighting each other, you, you gotta find, find something your passion else to somewhere. do. <laughs> <laughs> At one of Hideyoshi's tea ceremonies, it was said that more than a thousand people attended. So, giant tea party. Not in Boston. Wow. <laughs> No other tea parties have ever happened besides Boston. Besides there. Boston, yeah. that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely incredible. Yeah, so other things, art on the sliding doors or castle and temple walls began to incorporate gold lacquer, and they used a lot of brighter colors. Specifically, green became very important. They, there was a bunch of performances that became more popular. Performance art was big, which there was one group specifically that was led by a shrine maiden called Okuni. And there's a bunch of like nobles and stuff that were like, I can't believe there's all these women performing. I can't have these women performing in my male dominated art forms. Girls, I want to see men. <laughs> Let's go, girls. Yeah. <laughs> so it, but despite that, it was still very popular. And they also developed puppet theater, which, mm. fuck that. I don't like puppets, puppets. Oh, I thought I thought like there was some like dark historical thing. Like the puppets were actually like the heads of their I guess, enemies. I guess it's not so much puppets; it's the dolls, like those oh. creepy porcelain dolls. I guess oh. if they had a primitive Sesame Street, that's okay. I did, I totally thought that was going somewhere like dark and ominous. Like no, it's just no. Jacob just does not, not like not uh, a fan of puppet theater. I guess. Oh, <laughs> so they're they're. Traditional wear was originally called the kasode, which was kind of an undergarment, which turned into an outer garment and eventually transformed into the kimono, which is the most popular form of Japanese traditional dress today. Mm -hmm. Men and women began to tie their hair up since they weren't carrying items on their heads anymore. And so style is changing. 
So yeah, I mean, not, it, it, those stuff that stuff's not super exciting, but it's just interesting that traditions and like style and everything that have been commonplace for a while are all reforming now. Right. I mean, in the ten years that he was shogun, a lot happens culturally. I mean, econo- in the economy, of course, there the two invasions weren't uh, not the best, weren't his best. But I mean, in the country itself, like there's a lot of cool things happen in the culture. Definitely. Yeah, Hideyoshi did a lot. He was a very busy man, that's for sure. But I think at the end of his rule, he just like never trusted anyone. No, like he, he was, it was paranoid. Just, it was just the two. Like he constantly thought he was getting going to be assassinated. Like did not even trust like his wife. Nope. Just he he, he like initially claimed that his nephew was going to be his heir. Right. And, and then he had his nephew commit seppuku. Yeah. <laughs> so his nephew didn't last very long. And then he just set up a council of five elders after he had a son and said, hey, this son's not going to be old enough. I know I'm going to die before he gets old enough to rule. So you five are in charge of making sure that things get done before he's old enough. And guess how that works out? Wait until next week on <laughs> Dragon Ball Z. It doesn't. <laughs> yeah, that's the end of part one for us. So we got some more stuff. We're going to talk about one of the biggest battles, the Battle of Sekigahara, mm-hmm. which is very important. And that kind of ends everything as far as like the conflict and stuff and settles everything officially into what it's going to be. Yes, the big climactic battle uh, of this 200-year civil war. So definitely tune in next week. I'm extremely excited to talk about it, dive into it. And then just go over, you know, what Japan looked like immediately after. So, can't wait to to talk to y'all next week. Absolutely. Zuki, are you excited? Oh, now she has nothing to say. she finally settled down. She's had a big day. (laughs) I guess so. Mm. But anyways, that is the end of part one of the Sengoku Jidai. So, stay tuned for more. We already did our plugs at the beginning, so you can go back and listen to those if you want to. Yeah, if you're wondering where to find us, uh, hit... 208. Just keep hitting that 15 second back. All the way back. All the way back (laughs) to the beginning. All right, guys. Everyone have a great week this week. That's all I got. (laughs) Bye. I was trying to think of something else fantastic to say. That's all I got. (laughs) Stay polished, everybody.